BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. This is the Tom Hartman Program. What a day, huh? The uh, horrible lessons the right-wing radicalism has taught America will be my opening rant if we can't stop this disintegration of trust in America and, you know, and regain the ability to reform and make our government work for all the people. We could be looking at the end of the American experiment. I'll tell you about that in a minute. Also, we have a conversation with great minds today. Jonathan M. Katz has a new book out called Gangsters of Capitalism, Smedley Butler, the Marines, and the Making and Breaking of America's Empire. And we're going to talk about everything from how right-wing movements overthrow countries and have tried to overthrow the United States now twice, to how the American foreign policy from Smedley Butler's era, the late 1800s, the early 1900s, you know, really set us on the course to be where we're at right now. So that's what's coming up in the program today. I want to start with a rant that I wrote for HartmanReport.com. Uh, it's titled, Unmasked, The Horrible Lesson Right-Wing Radicalism Has Taught America. And this is like sweeping the country, this whole right-wing radical meme, from the weird and small and local to the big and national. You know, I mean, you've got like Pastor Greg Locke, who literally organized a book burning in Tennessee a week or so ago. You've got the people who attacked the Capitol, trying to uh, keep Donald Trump in power, believing his lies. You've got, uh, during the summer of 2020, we had hundreds of people turning up in dozens of small American cities because George Soros was sending black people on buses into their towns to tear up their towns on behalf of Antifa. You know, another one of these right-wing memes that was promoted on Facebook that just literally did not exist. And we're seeing this now with these truckers in Canada, many of whom are actually displaying Trump flags, MAGA flags, which is kind of mind-boggling. You've got the anti-vax and the anti-mask true believers, and they're still getting fights on airplanes. You know, this is not, by the way, brand new. A decade ago, we saw this when some right-wing billionaires organized a so-called Tea Party and paid for buses to bring these elderly dupes, these poor Americans who believed that Obamacare was going to take away their health care, you know, put them in front of TV microphones and create this astroturf movement, in quotes, you know, with signs like, get your government hands off my Medicare. That one still has me scratching my head. And like I said, now we've got this Canadian trucker movement. And the result of all of this is that 
during the Trump years, we actually saw America shift in the direction of being less democratic. Freedom House and other democracy monitoring organizations actually noted that by the end of the Trump administration, America was a less democratic nation than it had been, and it was a significant shift. And in many ways, we're still there. In fact, I'd say the Supreme Court shadow docket decision saying that it's fine for Alabama to have to gerrymander the state to reduce black power in that state, black voting power in that state, a state where you've got, you know, almost a third of the voters in the state are black. And uh, out of seven congressional districts, I believe it is, they're going to have one. There's going to be one black district. This, I mean, this is the kind of stuff that comes out of this. There's, there's a real agenda here. And as far as I can tell, there are basically two groups behind it. Number one, you've got foreign trolls and foreign actors. And we, you know, we learned in the Mueller report about the participation of foreigners in the 2016 election. We're also seeing foreign trolls and foreign troll farms still operating with impunity on, on social media. And then you've got the right-wing billionaires who, you know, have been doing this for a long time. Back in 1934, they tried to kidnap and replace Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And as I said, and we're going to be talking to Jonathan Katz about that exact thing. You know, these rich people think that, eh, fascism won't be that bad. At home, I've got a copy of Fritz Tyson's book, uh, I Paid Hitler, which is pretty amazing. You know, I bought it years ago, and now the, the one copy on Amazon is like selling for over $1,000. But I've read it, right? I mean, it's his story of, he was the, he owned the biggest, you know, Tyson Steelworks, he owned T-H-Y-S-S-E-N, I think it's spelled. He ran this huge he was the John D. Rockefeller of Germany in 1933, and he did pay Hitler. He was, he was one of the people who financed Hitler's rise to power, and basically he was like, we thought we could control this guy, and we thought a little fascism won't be a bad thing. It'll reduce crime in the streets. But, you know, he's going to smash the labor unions. That's going to help us. And, you know, we're rich people. They're not going to come for us. Everything's going to be good. I mean, obviously, it didn't quite work out that way, as, as Fritz Tyson writes in I Paid Hitler. But, you know, this is what we've got, is we've got these, these wealthy right-wing billionaires who think that if America goes all Trump all the time and, and, you know, becomes like Victor Orban's Hungary, that they'll be fine. And actually, odds are they will. I would say that Hitler is not so much the model for Trump and right-wingism in America right now. I mean, they're, they're borrowing a lot of his tactics. But I think the, the model is not Hitler's Germany. It's Orban's Hungary right now. Or uh, Erdogan's Turkey. In fact, I don't know if you caught this. Uh, a, a, a Turkish immigrant who now plays in the NBA, the National Basketball Association, is doing an ad about how when he spoke out against the government in Turkey eight years ago before he emigrated to the United States, they arrested his father made him denounce him on television. It's just amazing. I mean, this is the direction that these guys want to take us. Our body politic is under assault right across the board, from Middle Eastern kingdoms and theocracies to Eurasian petrostates. The example of democracy in the United States is not something many of these countries want. I mean, keep in mind, when, when the Tiananmen Square thing happened in 1989, they were carrying a 20-foot-tall papier-mâché statue, you know, replica of the Statue of Liberty. Not something that governments around the world that are not small-D democratic want to have happen. And, and by the way, this lack of trust that's being built by these right-wing movements domestically and the foreign infiltration of them is killing us. 
The New York Times did a whole big special on this. Ezra Klein summarized it about how the number one thing that predicts a bad outcome from the COVID pandemic, we have the worst in the developed world. More people infected, more people dead, and more people disabled than any, literally any other country in the developed world. Why, and, and more than most countries in the undeveloped world. Why is that? Because we lack social trust. Why do we lack social trust? Because for 40 years, Republicans and conservatives have been telling us, government is not the solution to your problem. Government is the cause of your problems. And as we develop less and less trust in government, I mean, this, this works out great for right-wing billionaires, right? You don't trust government. Hey, let's shrink it down to the size that you can drown it in the bathtub and reduce taxes on billionaires. They're very happy with this. So what can we do? How can we most effectively counter this? I mean, I try to do this every day right here and also with the writing that I do, pointing out that there are foreign trolls and there are right-wing, uh, very, very wealthy right-wingers in this country who see democracy as at the least an inconvenience and at worst an outright outrage and want to change our form of government in the United States. And they've, and they've had some considerable success, particularly with their placement of right-wing trolls on the Supreme Court, as we saw from the, the decision down in Alabama to allow racial gerrymandering in violation of the Voting Rights Act of 1965. But how do we reach out to our friends and neighbors who have been sucked into this? I know a guy who's a fairly progressive fellow. He's been on this program. I'm not going to name him, but, you know, he's, he used to be a progressive activist. And he's now full anti-vax. And once he got into the whole anti-vax thing and discovering that Anthony Fauci has been lying to us all these years, suddenly he started discovering other right-wing things that he thought, well, maybe, maybe we shouldn't be taxing. What about the national debt? You know, it's just, it's like, once you start going down this rabbit hole, they got you. And how do you talk to your friends and neighbors about this? What do we do about this? My sense of it is that the main way that's going to happen is when, it, is when basically the leaders of the movement start going down in flames. When Donald Trump gets indicted, you know, when some of these right-wingers in Congress start getting indicted or investigated or outed or, you know, it's revealed what hustlers and, and, and shills they are. I'm of the opinion that the rubes, the people who have bought this stuff, are going to start waking up. Are you? I know, you know, occasionally we get callers here who are like, you know, hey, I've been listening to your show and wow, I didn't realize, you know, that kind of thing. But I don't see a magic bullet here. I don't see any easy way to do this. It's, it's, this is going to be tough. These guys are well organized. They're very, very wealthy. Eric Prince, you know, the billionaire brother of Betsy DeVos, who started Blackwater, has been running an operation spying on progressives and Democrats and anti-MAGA Republicans on behalf of the MAGA movement, the, you know, America's fascist movement. This is big. How can we break through? Rita on the Big Island in Hawaii, watching us on YouTube. Hey, Rita, what's up? Hi, Tom. Hey. Tom, I'm really nervous about this. So please calm me down if I get too excited. I heard Professor Richard Wolf about, oh, 12 days ago, tell us that we should pay attention maybe to an article in the Globe and Mail that's in Toronto. 
and he said that an author named Thomas Homer Dixon has written an article, and here it is. Oh, I've, I've read the article, yeah. He's basically warning that Canada has to get ready for when America turns fascist. Okay, and then the next person who take over that was that for what, somebody that wants to, doesn't get the Globe and Mail is in The Guardian, and in The Guardian, this author breaks it down very nicely and concisely. Mm -hmm. And the name of that article is the U.S. Could, could be under right-wing dictator by 2030, yep. Canadian Professor Warren. I've read it. So, you know, he was, for a day or two, he was a media sensation. You know, he was on a lot of media, on a lot of shows and podcasts and things. And if I was a Canadian, I would be saying, we need to get ready in the event that the United States goes fascist. But as an American, what I'm saying is, we need to get ready <laughs> to prevent America from going fascist. Because, frankly, I think the last stand is going to be the next two elections, 2022 and 2024. And if we can't mobilize massive number of, of Americans to get out and vote in the 2022 election, and Republicans can seize control of the House and or Senate, it's going to be a hell of a hard road to get Joe Biden reelected or Kamala Harris elected or whoever may be the Democratic nominee in 2024. It's going to be a, a very, very difficult time to get somebody who actually believes in democracy, because I guarantee you, the Republicans are going to put up somebody who wants to turn America into Hungary, which is, you know, exactly what the, the Canadian professor is talking about, Rita. And, exactly. Yeah, and this is an existential threat to our country. It's a threat to the American experiment. And you've got countries around the world who are not democratic countries, one-party states, and there's no shortage of them. There's, there's as many of them as there are democracies in the world now, um, maybe even more. And so you've got countries around the world that don't like the fact that we are an example, or at least were a good example of a functioning democracy, and they want to tear us apart. And, and by the way, once they've taken us down, then they take down Canada, then they take down Western Europe. I mean, you know, it's a whole domino thing. They've infiltrated the right-wing parties in France. They've infiltrated the right-wing parties in Spain. Spain now has an, a growing Nazi movement. They've infiltrated the right-wing parties in Germany. You got the AFD, the, uh, you know, uh, Alles für Deutschland, or, or whatever AFD stands for. I, I think that's what it is. This right-wing party that's adopting basically neo-Nazi rhetoric. They hit Sweden a year or so ago. This is happening all over the world, and most of it is happening by waving the banner of white supremacy, of, oh yes. my God, it's immigrants, oh my God, it's black people, oh my God, it's in Germany, it's, oh my God, it's Turks, you know, in, in England, it's, it's, you know, every country has got their minority group that they're freaking out about because this white supremacist racism panic, moral panic, is being promoted by foreign governments and actual Nazi racists within our governments. And it's a, it's a real challenge. We need to wake everybody up, Rita. We really do. Thank you for the call. Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes 
into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Just head over to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. Professional welder Shayna Ford used VR training developed by ForgeFX to hone her skills as a welder. The more time that you spend practicing it, that's what separates a good welder from a great welder. VR training can help students like Shayna repeatedly practice specific skills. Virtual reality definitely helps because the more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Explore more stories like Shayna's at meta.com slash metaverseimpact. A conversations with great minds. We're going to do a deep dive into a topic here. Jonathan M. Katz is on the line with us. He's a journalist. He's the author of two books, The Latest Gangsters of Capitalism, Smedley Butler, The Marines, and the Making and Breaking of American Empire, or America's Empire. He also has a newsletter called The Racket at theracket.news, and his website, Jonathan M. Katz, K-A-T-Z.com, and his Twitter handle is Cats on Earth, K-H-E-Z on Earth. Jonathan, welcome to the program. A remarkable book you've written. If we could start here, you, you talk about the movement that Trump built, this empire of greed, bigotry, and denialism. This is not something new. No, not at all. And thank you for, for the kind words about the book. Yeah, no, that's one of the things that I think is really important to understand about Trump and the Trump movement is that he's accessing ideas that have been really in, in America in a lot of ways since the founding, um, but were very, very present in this big wave of expansion and empire creating that is really the heart of, of my book and the research that I've been doing for the last seven years. Yeah, so for example, how did this play out? How did the same kind of political dynamic and racial and economic dynamic, how did this play out back in the years of Franklin Roosevelt. We've got a Democratic president now. We had a Democratic president then. I would argue that short of LBJ, the, you know, this is, Biden is trying to govern as one of the more progressive presidents in our history, more in line with Franklin Roosevelt. Tell us about that story. Well, so what you're seeing, what, what you saw in, in the 1930s was a lot of what you're seeing right now in the 2020s and in the late 2010s, which is sort of an era of big, imperialist war and expansionism in the era that I'm writing about, the Snubbly Butler's era, it is the U.S. occupation and invasion of Haiti and Nicaragua, you know, Cuba, the colonization of the Philippines, and all of that is kind of has, has reached its largest extent possible for that moment. There's been a big backlash at home, and the same forces of greed and racism that you know predicated what they were doing on sort of this cult of masculinity and this cult of whiteness that you know that it was the inheritance of as, as Franklin Delano Roosevelt fifth cousin said Teddy Roosevelt said that you know it was it was the the best thing that could happen to the world essentially was the inheritance of what he called the waste spaces of the world from non-whites to white people especially Americans and there was there had been a big backlash to that and so just as then as now there was sort of a, an isolation movement that kind of came as a result of that. And, you know, this, the same phrase was used, America first. 
And in Franklin Roosevelt Day, and you know, this, this is the opening of, of Gangsters, of my book, there is a group of powerful businessmen who see the way that Franklin Roosevelt, who himself had been an imperialist, was trying to change things in the United States and address a major crisis, namely the Great Depression, through government spending, through the power of Washington. And they saw it as a creeping socialism, if not sort of the, the opening bell of, of a whole age of American communism. And so they actually approached Medley Butler, who is, is the main character of my book, who uh, played a starring role in these wars of expansion in, in, in the, the decades before this, to try to lead a coup to overthrow FDR, which is a moment in American history that uh, most Americans don't remember and know anything about, but in many ways presaged the things that we saw specifically on January 6, 2021, but in the entire sort of larger Trump coup, which is, you know, in, in many ways still happening. We're talking with Jonathan Katz, the author of this brilliant new book, Gangsters of Capitalism. I probably should have started by asking you to explain to people, you know, I've, I've been ranting about Smedley Butler for 19 years on this program, <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> you know, who is this guy? I mean, I, I have a, excuse me, a copy of War is a Racket. Um, who is this guy and, and where did he come from? I mean, you open the book with the story of this bond dealer who's like, you know, building a relationship with Butler and over time, you know, yeah. talking to him from, from fascist Italy and then fascist Germany and, hey, this is really kind of cool. We should uh, Tell us the story about who was Butler to begin with. Why was he so well known in the United States? Why was he the guy that the fascists picked to try to overthrow, violently overthrow, if necessary, the Franklin Roosevelt administration in 34? Yeah, so in short, Butler was a Marine. He joined the Marine Corps in 1898. He was 16 years old, a rich kid from the Philadelphia main line. His father was a congressman, and he lied about his age to get into the Marine Corps, who were very happy to have him because they were looking for all the bodies that they could get, to fight Spain in Cuba, um, in what's broadly known as the Spanish-American or the Spanish-Cuban-American or the Spanish-Cuban-Filipino-American War. And from there, he rode a wave of American empire. I mean, this was America's first overseas war, and the Marines were the first force in that war that were deployed, and the Marines continued to sort of be the tip of the spear. And he fought in a litany of American uh, invasions and occupations, basically every overseas war from 1898 until the eve of World War II, you know, wars that Americans today know nothing about, but the people who live in those countries obviously still remember, and, and in, in some cases there are people who are alive today who, who have first-hand memory of those things. And he rose through the ranks. He became a, a major general. Uh, he was twice the recipient of the Medal of Honor. One is a big deal. Two is generally unheard of, especially these days. And he became a celebrity on the basis of his war record. And he starts going on the speaking circuit in uh, 1929 and the early 30s. He, he leaves the Marine Corps in 1931. And he starts to get a reputation as sort of the truth speaker, somebody who, who tells stories that other people aren't telling about what America was really doing in Haiti, what America was really doing in Nicaragua, etc. And so he is a, he's a big deal, and he's somebody who has a lot of experience overthrowing governments and overthrowing democratic governments. And so it kind of makes sense from that perspective 
Obviously, they made a very bad mistake in in uh, in going to him because he ends up blowing the whistle on them and, and testifying in the Congress and telling him everything that that he knows. But it, it sort of makes sense from that standpoint why this Wall Street financial institution and Gerald C. McGuire, who was the was the representative of of this group, identified Butler as the person that they thought had a shot at leading their coup to overthrow Franklin Delano Roosevelt and stop the New Deal. Yeah, and and who was. Who was McGuire representing? McGuire was the bond dealer who, who uh, approached uh, Butler and, and tried to bring him into this uh, little conspiracy. Who were the leaders of the conspiracy, and who were the shock troops, the ground troops that they were expecting to show up with Butler at the White House? Yeah, so we, we, know, we know through Butler um, and through McGuire's own sort of uh, perjury-filled and somewhat contradictory testimony, but you can sort of suss out the parts that, that make sense in the context of everything else we know. We know who McGuire said he was working for. So more, most directly, he was working for his boss, a guy named Grayson N.P. Murphy, um, who, you know, in many ways, Butler was sort of the, the Forrest Gump or the Zelig of, of this first uh, wave of America's overseas empire. Uh, and Murphy was another Zelig-like figure. He was involved in, in lots of, of these campaigns, um, and also had a, a deep background in military intelligence, as well as financial imperialism. Uh, he was connected to uh, J.P. Morgan and Company. Um, and, uh, you know, it, it seems very likely that McGuire was telling the truth, almost hard to believe anything else, that Murphy, that his boss, was trying to carry out this coup and to get Butler to lead it. McGuire also claims that, in addition to Murphy, are some of the biggest names in American capitalism of 1934. So the big ones are the DuPonts uh, of DuPont Corporation, Alfred P. Sloan of General Motors, uh, the heads of uh, the McCann-Erickson ad agency of uh, Phillips Oil, Sun Oil, a number of, of General Foods, a bunch of, a bunch of big names. And the way that they come into this story is because Murphy tells Butler that there's going to be a group of essentially financial backers who are going to emerge behind the scenes to arm, and you were asking who the shock troops were, they were World War I veterans. Probably the idea was that they were going to be uh, brought together maybe by the American Legion, um, which is, you know, sort of has a reputation of, of being the, the most right-leaning of, of, of the veterans organizations, but they were going to be brought together uh, according to a model that McGuire had researched and, and met with himself um, in, uh, after traveling through fascist Italy and fascist Germany, he goes to France uh, and meets with a group that had just participated in uh, a, a, a riot of far-right and fascist groups to prevent the transfer of power in France uh, to, in the parliament uh, to a, a center-left party. That is a real, real close analog to, to what happened here on January 6th. And, you know, the reason why I'm, I'm putting all this on McGuire, I'm a journalist, I'm being careful with my sources here, is because we can't, I can't prove um, beyond a shadow of a doubt that the DuPonts or these other big names knew what McGuire was doing and they knew uh, the, the, the end result of this plan. We do know that they, that they had a very direct connection to him because Grace and Murphy this Zelig-like military intelligence figure, financier, who's uh, McGuire's boss, was the treasurer of their group, the Liberty League, which was mm -hmm. this anti-New Deal organization that they were part of. Um, 
but you know, so far, uh, you know, th- there's no paper trail that, that's been found to, to say that, like, you know, McGuire or Murphy went to the Duponts and said, "We're going to do this coup. Uh, we're going to overthrow Roosevelt. We're going to have uh, uh, Butler." Uh, you know, that that that's still a, a question mark that, that that needs to be filled in. Stay with us. Jonathan Katz is with us. He's the author of Gangsters of Capitalism, Smedley Butler, The Marines, and the Making and Breaking of America's Empire. We will continue with our conversations with great minds. It's the Tom Hartman University Book Club. Today we're reading from War is a Racket by General Smedley Butler. General Butler in 1935, when he wrote this book, had just retired from the U.S. Marine Corps as the most decorated or one of the most decorated soldiers in American history. Uh, He was that generation's Dwight Eisenhower. In 1914, he helped capture Veracruz, Mexico. In 1917, he helped uh, capture Fort Revere and thus Haiti. Uh, he was he was uh, he'd received the Distinguished Service Medal in 1919. So anyhow, here's the book. War is a racket. It always has been. It is possibly the oldest, easily the most profitable, surely the most vicious. It is the only one international in scope. It is the only one in which the profits are reckoned in dollars and the losses in lives. A racket is best described, I believe, as something that is not what it seems to the majority of people. Only a small inside group knows what it's about. It is conducted for the benefit of the very few at the expense of the very many. Out of war, a few people make huge fortunes. In World War I, a mere handful garnered the profits of the conflict. At least 21,000 new millionaires and billionaires were made in the United States during that World War. That many admitted their huge blood gains in their income tax returns. How many other millionaires falsified their tax returns? No one knows. How many of these war millionaires shouldered a rifle? How many of them dug a trench? How many of them knew what it meant to go hungry in a rat-infested dugout? How many of them spent sleepless, frightened nights ducking shells and shrapnel and machine gun bullets? How many of them parried a bayonet thrust of an enemy? How many of them were wounded or killed in battle? Out of war, nations acquire additional territory if they're victorious. They just take it. This newly acquired territory promptly is exploited by the few, the self-same few who wrung dollars out of blood in the war. The general public shoulders the bill. And what is that bill? This bill renders a horrible accounting. Newly placed gravestones, mangled bodies, shattered minds, broken hearts and homes, economic instability, depression and all its attendant miseries, back-breaking taxation for generations and generations. For a great many years as a soldier, I had a suspicion that war was a racket. Not until I retired to civilian life did I fully realize it. Now that I see the international war clouds gathering as they are today, I must face it and speak out. Again, they are choosing sides. France and Russia met and agreed to stand side by side. Italy and Austria hurried to make a similar agreement. Poland and Germany cast sheep's eyes at each other, forgetting for the nonce one unique occasion, their dispute over the Polish corridor. The assassination of King Alexander of Yugoslavia can complicated methods. Yugoslavia and Hungary, long bitter enemies, were almost at each other's throats. Italy was ready to jump in, but France was waiting, and so was Czechoslovakia. All of them are looking ahead to war. Not the people, not those who fight and pay and die, only those who foment wars and remain safely at home to profit. There are 40 million men under arms in the world today, and our statesmen and diplomats have the temerity to say that war is not in the making. 
hell's bells? Are these 40 million men being trained to be dancers? Not in Italy, to be sure. Premier Mussolini knows what they're being trained for. He at least is frank enough to speak out. Only the other day, Il Duce in International Conciliation, the publication of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, said, quote, And above all, fascism, the more it considers and observes the future and the development of humanity, quite apart from political considerations of the moment, believes neither in the possibility nor the utility of perpetual peace. War alone brings up to its highest tension all human energy and puts the stamp of nobility upon the people who have the courage to meet it. End of quote from Mussolini. Undoubtedly, Mussolini means exactly what he says. His well-trained army, his great fleet of planes, and even his navy are ready for war. Anxious for it, apparently. His recent stand at the site of Hungary and the latter's dispute with Yugoslavia showed that. And the hurried mobilization of his troops to the Austrian border after the assassination of Dolphus. There are others in Europe, too, whose saber-rattling presages war sooner or later. Herr Hitler, with his rearming Germany and his constant demands for more and more arms, is an equal, if not greater, menace to peace. France only recently increased the term of military service for its youth from a year to 18 months. Yes, overall, nations are camping in their arms. The mad dogs of Europe are on the loose. In the Orient, the maneuvering is more adroit. Back in 1904, when Russia and Japan fought, we kicked our old friends, the Russians, and backed Japan. Then our very generous international bankers were financing Japan. Now the trend is to poison us against the Japanese. What does this open-door policy to China mean to us? Our trade with China is about $90 million a year. For the Philippine Islands, we spent about $600 million in the Philippines in 35 years. And we, our bankers and industrialists and speculators, have private investments there of less than $200 million. Then to save that China trade of about $90 million or to protect those private investments of less than $200 million in the Philippines, we would be all stirred up to hate Japan and go to war, a war that might well cost us tens of billions of dollars, hundreds of thousands of lives of Americans, and many more hundreds of thousands of physically maimed and mentally unbalanced men. Of course, for this loss, there would be a compensating profit. Fortunes will be made. Millions and billions of dollars will be piled up by a few. War is a Racket by General Smedley Butler. As a professional welder, Shayna Ford uses Forge FX to practice over and over, which helps her improve her skills. The more muscle memory that you have, the smoother your weld is. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. And welcome back. So, Jonathan, what happened when word of this leaked out and Congress started trying to look into it? So Butler testifies. Butler also enlists a newspaper reporter from another period in his life 
He actually spent two years running the Philadelphia Police Department and actually plays an instrumental role in the militarization of American police. Like I say, the man felt like he's everywhere. Mm. Um, but he and this newspaper reporter both testify in front of a congressional committee. And it's actually the precursor committee to the House Un-American Activities Committee, HUAC, um, which becomes obviously notorious during sort of the, the second Red Scare, the McCarthy Exactly. But, it, but at, this, at this point, um, they're more interested in fascism. They're interested in, in trying to find, you know, uh, ways specifically the German Nazi and also just sort of fascist movements are trying to, to gain uh, a foothold in America in, in, back in the 1930s. And they only call two other witnesses. They call Jerry Maguire, who's this bond salesman who, who tried to recruit Butler, and they call the lawyer for one of the other sort of lesser uh, businessmen uh, who Maguire had said was, was uh, backing him. He was the, the heir to the Singer sewing machine fortune, um, who it seems bowed out of, of whatever was going on at a pretty early date. And that's it. So there's no big investigation. Did FDR put his foot down and say no? As far as we know, no. The only reaction that, that I've ever seen uh, attested to FDR is that he had a one-word answer when he heard what had been in, in, in the making, uh, and that he said, it was, he said, fantastic, I guess, you know, kind of sarcastically. Right. Um, this, is also a, this is also an era when uh, presidents aren't being quoted directly in newspapers, so it's, it's a little hard to say, you know, other thoughts that he had about it. Um, FDR knew that fascism was a growing trend in America. Oh, Henry Wallace was ranting about it (laughs) a little later on, but he wasn't the vice president at that time, but, you know, in the the early 40s or late 30s. Yeah, well, this Exactly. This, this, I mean, this wasn't news to anybody who was paying attention. And, yeah. and Franklin Roosevelt knew, like, you know, he was, look, he, he, was, he was a very, very wealthy guy from a very wealthy, very old family um, who had, you know, come up through uh, uh, the military bureaucracy. Uh, he, like Teddy, had been uh, assistant secretary of the Navy and knew Butler personally because they had been friends during the U.S. occupation of Haiti. Um, they, they, they barnstormed around Haiti together. Um, and so he knew people who loathed democracy and democratic institutions abroad and he saw the ways in which they were you know he says you know that they felt that the the totalitarians had had grasped the uh the, the necessities of of their time is is, is sort of the words that, that, that he's putting in his uh, uh uh you know peers mouths um but fdr makes a different decision right he decides that he's going to show people how liberal democracy can still work for them that the government, the power of government, the power of the American constitutional system as it existed um, would, would meet their needs and respond to what they asked for in the 1932 election, which was a new deal, which was a, a uh, you know, the, the power of the government to help them survive the, the depression. Um, so that's what we know. Yeah, amazing stuff. We'll be right back with uh, Jonathan Katz. His new book is Gangsters of Capitalism, Smedley Butler, The Marines and the Making and Breaking of America's empire. Welcome back. We're talking with Jonathan Katz about his brilliant new book, Gangsters of Capitalism, Smedley Butler, The Marines, and the Making and Breaking of America's Empire. Um, Jonathan, you talk in the book about how uh, Butler's Marines, this is you know before the, the attempted coup against Roosevelt, before he blew the whistle on it, um, that they had pioneered a set of strategies uh, referred to as COIN, the combination of military, political, and psychological methods employed by occupying powers 
with the goal of holistically defeating an armed resistance. To what extent is what Butler basically pioneered when he was on the bad side before he had his you know, come to Jesus moment and, and decided to spill the beans and tell us all what was going on. How has that affected American foreign policy and American politics? I, I, I think I'm seeing some of this right now in our domestic politics, you know, with the whole Trump movement and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, as you know, so Butler was one of the founders of counterinsurgency. Like in the book, and people have to check out the book to get all the details about this. I go into a lot of detail about what Americans and and the Marines particularly are doing in these wars of conquest and and occupation. Um, And Butler is is one of the, he's he's not a good guy in in, in this era. Um, And part of the reason why Butler is is remembered by some people today is because, you know, you mentioned the book War is a Racket. This is part of an anti-imperialist, anti-war phase that that he goes on for, you know, essentially the, the remainder of his life in the 1930s. And he calls himself, he says, I was a racketeer for capitalism. And he, he lists all these horrible things that he did. And he really did do them. And, you know, those still have effect today, both in the way that people in the countries that he helped invade and conquer look at Americans in the tactics that he and his Marines created that have been used more recently in, in Iraq, Afghanistan, Syria, Libya, Somalia, etc. And we have seen those come back home because that's the thing. And this is one of the things that the Smelly Butler really teaches us, is that the abuses, the impunity with which Americans fight our wars overseas, the conquests that we make, come back home in the form of authoritarianism and fascism. And unless we make it right out there, we're never going to make it right here. Amen. Great point. The book Gangsters of Capitalism by Jonathan Katz, Jonathan M. Katz. TheRacket.News, JonathanMKatz.com, and of course, Cats uh, on Earth, K-A-T-Z on Earth. Jonathan, thanks for dropping by. Thank you. Great talking with you. We'll be right back. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today is Gangsters of Capitalism by Jonathan Katz, the subtitle Smedley Butler, The Marines and the Making and Breaking of America's Empire. This is from the prologue, Newtown Square, Pennsylvania, USA, 1933. The banker's men were back. Smedley Butler sized up the one doing all the talking, the bond salesman in the tailored suit. The visitor was sitting in the vaulted main hallway the butlers used as a living room. His cannonball-shaped head framed by the retired general's old command flags metals, swords, and assorted tropical bric-a-brac. Two mammoth red satin umbrellas given to Butler by villagers on his last overseas mission to China swayed gently overhead atop their 15-foot poles. The bond salesman, one Gerald C. McGuire, represented himself as a member of the American Legion, a veterans organization founded at the end of the Great War. He was trying to persuade Butler to come to the next Lexington Convention in Chicago, to give a speech denouncing President Franklin Delano Roosevelt, specifically his recent decision to take the dollar off the gold standard. Butler, the salesman said, would travel in secret with a few hundred legionnaire friends. Once they were at the convention, they would spread out around the assembly and start a chant to demand that Butler be given the floor. What rank-and-file veteran could afford a five-day trip to Chicago in the middle of the Great Depression, Butler wondered. McGuire replied it would all be taken care of. Train tickets, hotels, everything. How'd you get the money to do that? The general asked. 
Oh, we have friends, McGuire responded. Then he opened a bank book showing $42,000 in deposits, worth over $850,000 nearly a century later. Butler was accustomed to people asking him for favors. It was the price of fame. For 33 years and four months, he'd been in active service as a United States Marine, a veteran of nearly every overseas conflict dating back to the war against Spain in 1898. Respected by his peers, beloved by his men, he was known throughout the country as the Fighting Hell Devil Marine, Old Gimlet Eye, the Leatherback's Friend, and the famous Fighting Quaker of the Devil Dogs. Best-selling books have been written about him. Hollywood adored him. President Roosevelt's cousin, the late Theodore himself, was said to have called Butler the ideal American soldier. Over the course of his career, he had received the Army and Navy Distinguished Service Medals, the French Order de l'Etoile Noire, and in the distinction that would ensure his place in the Marine Corps Pantheon, the Medal of Honor twice. But most who asked for an audience at the General's converted farmhouse in Newtown Square, a suburb on Philadelphia's main line, did not carry thick bank books as the bond salesman did. Nor did they pull up in his dirt driveway in a chauffeured Packard limousine. Butler wanted to know more. Asking around in the days that followed, he learned that McGuire had been a Navy man in the World War and had suffered a skull fracture at sea in 1918, off the exact spot on the coast of France where Butler had been stationed. All that explained the ties to the American Legion, if little else. Over the following weeks, McGuire continued the courtship. In Newark, where Butler was attending the reunion of a National Guard division, McGuire showed up at his hotel room and tossed a wad of cash on the bed. $18,000, he said. You put that money away before someone walks in here, Butler barked. Then he asked where all the money was coming from. McGuire told the general he was working for several wealthy backers. One of them was Robert Sterling Clark, an heir to the Singer sewing machine fortune, whom Butler had known as a lieutenant in China during the Boxer Rebellion decades earlier. Another was McGuire's boss, the well-connected financier Grayson M.P. Murphy, who had close ties with the nation's most powerful bank, J.P. Morgan & Company, and Wall Street's most influential law firm, Sullivan & Cromwell. Clark himself paid a visit to the Newtown Square House soon after, hinting broadly that he would convey the Butler's mortgage if the, if the Marine played ball. The dates of the American Legion Convention came and went. Butler did not go. But then, a few months later, in, the early 1930, in early 1934, Butler received a postcard from McGuire. It was sent from the French Riviera, where the bond salesman had just arrived after visiting fascist Italy. About two months later, Butler received another postcard, this time from Germany. The Reichstag fire had happened a year earlier. Hitler was now Chancellor, on his way to becoming Fuhrer. McGuire said he was having a wonderful time in Berlin. In August 1934, McGuire called Butler from Philadelphia and asked to meet. Butler suggested an abandoned cafe in the back of the lobby of the Bellevue Stratford Hotel. The time has come to get the soldiers together, McGuire said. Yes, Butler replied, I think so too. He had no idea what they were talking about. He just wanted the salesman to keep talking about the outlines of what he was really after, as it became clear. First, McGuire excitedly recounted all that he had seen in Europe. In fascist Italy and Nazi Germany, he'd learned that Mussolini and Hitler were able to stay in power because they kept soldiers on their payrolls in various positions. But that setup wouldn't suit us. The soldiers of America wouldn't like that, the businessman opined. 
But in France, McGuire had found just the exactly the organization you're going to have. The book Gangsters of Capitalism by Jonathan M. Katz. You're listening to Tom Hartman. First of all, uh, Dante Wright's killer, uh, police officer Kim Potter, was sentenced to two years in prison. And the judge uh, seemed to nearly break down on the stand saying this is the toughest case ever. I mean, we've got a 400-year history in this country of authority figures, police officers and similar authority figures murdering people of color and getting nothing, just walking away. Uh, just, you know, not even being charged. Or when they are charged, you know, like, you know, with the, uh, the killers of Schwarmer, Goodman, and Cheney down in, you know, uh, the whole Mississippi burning thing, the civil rights workers back in the 60s, uh, getting off just completely scot-free, even when it's obvious to everybody that they're guilty. So the starting point, I think, in terms of my commentary on this, and I'll, I'll keep it short, is that the message is being sent, and this is what I think is really important, the message is being sent to police officers all around the country. You have the ability to use lethal force. Kim Potter, of course, was claiming that she thought she had grabbed her taser and was yelling, taser, 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 when she shot Dante Wright. And in fact, she had a gun in her hand. And now, tasers and guns feel very differently. They're stored on different sides of your body if you're a police officer. I mean, there's a whole bunch of reasons to think that maybe she's BSing us. On the other hand, you know, she seems genuinely freaked out by the whole thing, and uh, so maybe it was a screw-up. And that's, that's basically what the judge said. This was a horrible accident, was, as I recall, the phrase that the judge used. But the message that is going out to cops all across the country is because we have given you the power of life or death over every citizen in the United States, we're watching. We're going to hold you to account. And that's a message that up until the last decade, frankly, was not sent to police officers in this country. Instead, the message that cops got in this country was, don't worry, the police union will protect you. Nothing's going to happen to you. You're going to get away with it. You know, uh, that sort of thing. So, you know, those are my thoughts on that. I mean, if you, if you disagree or want to agree or whatever, uh, feel free to call in. The other at the top of the news in this eastern part of Ukraine, I've, I've been saying for two weeks now on this program, that my guess, and I'm not an expert on this region or on you know, Russian-Ukrainian relations at all, but I do read the news probably a whole lot more heavily than most people. My sense of it, number one, a lot of this is being motivated by Putin's problems inside Russia. Ever since the Navalny, you know, his, his trying to poison Navalny and then imprisoning him, and, and, you know, and, and then he went after one of the Pussy Riot people and whatnot. Uh, I, you know, I think, frankly, he's, he's got some serious political problems at home. And what did Maggie Thatcher do when her uh, approval ratings were in the toilet? She attacked the Falklands. You know, what did George W. Bush do when his approval ratings were in the, in the tank? He attacked Afghanistan and Iraq. Uh, what did Ronald Reagan do after we had a really severe recession and, and his uh, approval ratings were, were in the toilet? Um, you know, he, he, he attacked the... Uh, the medical school in this uh, in Grenada, this little island off the off the southern coast of the United States, imitating Maggie Thatcher. 
my take is that that's what Putin's doing. And therefore, you know, and, and part of it is, you know, his whole rant about NATO, et cetera, et cetera. But, but I really think that this is what's going on. And if so, he needs to be able to cl claim a victory back home. And yet he doesn't want to trigger an overwhelming response from the rest of the world. And now you've got these Russian militias, Russian affiliated and sympathetic uh, militias in the eastern part of Ukraine, where about a quarter of the population is ethnically Russian and speaks Russian, evacuating women and children out of that region. So the question that, if, if I'm right on this, and I may well not be, let me just put that right up front, but if I'm right on this, the question I think that, that uh, Western groups is, how do they respond? Do they go uh, you know, all the way with all the threats that they've issued? and try to bring Russia to its knees economically, or do they do a more measured uh, response? I have no idea what the right answer for that is. Uh, but I can guarantee you it's being debated right now inside the White House and the State Department and in NATO, and probably within the United Nations. So we all need to keep an eye on this and, and see what's going on. Dan in Omaha, Nebraska. Hey, Dan, what's on your mind today? I have been sitting on this uh, Tom, thank you for taking my call. I've been sitting on this for a long time. I am, uh, I call myself a legacy baby. I was born before the baby boomers in 1944. Mm -hmm. And uh, the important part about that, and when you think about it, people born in 1944 were the first generation of kids raised on television. And uh, just to kind of, my memory is very, very good. I can tell you who my landlord was when I was born. All right, so uh, what I remember about the 50s is that, number one, we won the war. Number two, communism is bad. And number three, Americanism and capitalism are the same thing. All right? We went through that. We had uh, things like I led three lives and all sorts of uh, people attacking the communists and everything. But what they weren't getting and I had to actually go to college to find out what fascism really was. Hmm. Wasn't taught. You're talking about the merger of state and corporate interests combined with belligerent right. nationalism? Or the fascism that people will not say instead, uh, you know, they're, calling, they're saying all sorts of different names. No, these people are fascists, and they should be called that because and exposed. Yeah. Yeah, we need another, we need another, uh, 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 what was Wallace's first name? Henry Wallace, the oh, vice yeah. FDR's vice president. You know, back in, in, the, uh, in, in the 40s, uh, mm -hmm. I forget the year, I think it was, it was while we were at war. Um, back in mm -hmm. the 40s, Wallace was asked by the New York Times, are there fascists in America and who are they? And Wallace just, yeah, I mean, you can Google this. You can, it's still on mm -hmm. the New York Times website. Um, mm -hmm. I've written about it several times. You plug my name mm -hmm. and you'll find it really easily. Tom Hartman and Henry Wallace. Henry Wallace came right out and said, you know, America is filled with fascists and they're, in, they're basically the business elite in this country, or at least mm -hmm. many of them are in the business elite in this country because they want to do in an American way what the fascists in, in Europe did in a German or Italian or mm -hmm. Spanish way. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'm with you, Dan. I'm with you. Thank you for sharing that. It, it is distressing how malinformed, not just misinformed or uninformed, but malinformed, disinformed. Americans are about what fascism really is and what the consequences of fascism taking over a country are. It's not all cartoony, goose-stepping stuff. Carrie in Arlington Heights, Illinois. Hey, Carrie, what's on your mind today? Hi, Jim. 
Hey. Okay, so I called you oh, two years ago or so um, in response to you asking a question as to what's wrong with, I don't remember if it's conservatives or Republicans. And this is a topic that really interests me. And I've been thinking about it ever since. Um, and I, I answered, I think all roads lead to racism, to which you kind of gristled, which I can understand. We don't want to think, you know, we're a country of racists. I was wondering if your thoughts on that had evolved at all. They have. Yeah, I think, I think the, uh, the two major animating factors in the Republican Party. You know, there's not a single black woman elected as a Republican at the, at the federal level. Not yeah. one. I mean, you know, I think the two animating, and, and the very few black people, period, uh, in, in the GOP, I think the single animate, the two major animating forces for the Republican Party are uh, racial grievance or racism and fear. Just plain old, you know, just a generalized anxiety that, that translates into paranoia and makes people very, very vulnerable to the politics, the, the, these hysterical grievance politics that Fox News likes to promote. And what do you think? I, I know you, you uh, bring up Professor Bob Altemeyer. Um, I also mm -hmm. uh, like Dr. Karen Stenner. They have a slightly different point of view. Mm -hmm. um, and I was wondering, you know, what, what do you think the authoritarian you know, in, in the scientific term. Well, that's the fear part. You know, I, I, I guess I could restate it as saying racism and authoritarianism are the two major animating forces in the GOP. Does that work for you, Kerry? Oh, it all works. You always work for me, Tom. I always say. Jeff in Portland, Oregon. Hey, Jeff, what's on your mind today? Just as a quick aside, I want to I want to point out that this isn't the first time a police officer uh, in recent history has killed a young black man uh, while claiming their gun. They thought their gun was a taser. It happened about a decade ago in Oakland mm -hmm. uh, when Oscar Grant was killed at a BART station, and the officer in that case uh, was only sentenced to she. Uh, th that officer claimed the same thing. They thought their gun was a taser and they were sentenced to only 11 months so yeah. you know i see a disturbing pattern and my here. point was With, even if it was a taser they wouldn't have pulled it out if it was a white person in the first place yeah and and the 2013 film fruitvale station does an excellent job dramatizing uh that that tragedy that yeah. happened in oakland uh but tom i want to weigh in on the ukraine situation uh yesterday amy goodman interviewed jack matlock he, he's a former u.s ambassador he's 92 years old he was a former u.s ambassador to the soviet union and before he was an ambassador he was working in the american embassy in moscow during the cuban missile crisis he actually translated one of khrushchev's letters to jfk uh in during the crisis Hmm. And uh, fascinating interview. And he pointed out that had President Kennedy listened to the Joint Chiefs of Staff, we probably would have lost Miami to a nuclear strike. And, and who, else, who knows what kind of chain reaction that would have set off. But my point, the same point I made two weeks ago, if JFK could figure out a way to de-escalate that crisis, that monumental crisis, uh, let's hope Biden can do the same now. But Amen. finally, Tom, your old, your old buddy, Greg Pallas, um, he's got a unique take on all this. And uh, he believes uh, one of Putin's uh, motivations is to drive up the price of oil and you know that's already happened and he suggests greg suggests that as a counter move biden should uh end our irrational embargo on venezuelan oil and you know tom in my opinion even as a standalone action uh with with uh oil pricing uh contributing so much to this current inflation why shouldn't biden do this anyway what do you think yeah, it makes, it makes a lot of sense to me. I think that we should end the Venezuelan embargo. I think we should end the Cuban embargo. I, I just don't think generally embargoes work. And, and you know. 
Yeah, and and uh, the Yemen, the Saudi embargo of Yemen. Um, yeah. yeah, those are three well, embargoes. That's not an embargo. That's a blockade. I mean, they're they're literally oh, the starving yeah, people yeah, to death yeah, by, yeah. by blocking food yeah. ships from coming in, um, you know, which is just uh, beyond reprehensible. Yeah. So. Yes. So. Yeah, no, I'm, 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 I'm with you, Jeff. I'm with you. I, and, and, you know, hopefully we can do something about it. Thanks a lot for the call. Tim in Matawan, Michigan. Hey, Tim, you got the last minute. What's up? I think that right now would be a really good time for Finland to join NATO. Why? Because, uh, well, the Russians got 300 miles of their property in World War II, and uh, I think it would be very strategic now for them to do that, and it would take... You don't think it would be very provocative? I mean, you know, it's it's kind of the, the same thing with Switzerland historically being neutral. But uh, what has you got to them some insulation. To understand is that NATO is a defensive operation. It well, doesn't have any idea of, of you running into that, Russia and, and I believe that, them. and NATO asserts that. But that's not what Russia believes, well, I, I think, or certainly it's not what they're saying. I mean, I, you know, there are people saying that Ukraine should declare neutrality. I, I'm not a fan of that. I don't think they should. But, uh, you know, I mean, this is this is one of the debates that's happening in foreign policy circles right now, Tim. But but I think that having Finland suddenly jump in and say, no, we're going to be part. I, and boy, I think that would just make the mess even messier. But, you know, I, let's let the professionals sort this one out. Thanks a lot for being with us today. It's been quite a show. Uh, quite a day, quite, uh, a lot going on in the world. I think it's going to be a real, real consequential time, uh, particularly in Ukraine. So get out there, get active, tag your it, be good to yourself and the people around you. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.